go. All right. The topic of the study tonight is um, continuing in this uh, study of the book, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, this chapter is entitled, Boasting Only in the Cross. And uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Of course, that was Paul speaking, uh, giving us an understanding of his passion, his desire, and his intent through which his life would be lived. And as I thought about that, I recognized that even though Paul was a very um, learned, educated man, ed educated in the scriptures, the uh, Jewish law, and could have spent his life expounding on a number of really great truths, he chose to put that aside and instead focus really the the his life on that single truth knowing uh, the Christ crucified and teaching based on the impact and what that meant to us as as believers in uh, on page 44 if you have I assume that Pastor Josh passed out last week, chapter 3 of the book. Uh, John Piper talks about the ways that many people believe that they can make an impact on the world. Uh, if you have that section in your uh, chapter, I'd like to have us talk about that for just a minute. And I'd like to have you read that section. And comment a little bit about the ways in which John brings out that people feel that they can have an impact impact on the world. And maybe if you don't have that chapter, maybe feel free to comment on that yourself. What are some ways the world views that they can make an impact on the world? No wrong answers. Good job. Okay. Something everybody's looking for, I think. Are you looking at it from a world point of view or no, I think generally from the world's point of view, how would the world view that they could impact the world? Or how do we see people in the world today um, that, that believe that they are having an impact on the world and what is it about them that they are using they feel to, to make that uh, impact okay raising a family mm -hmm. um, 
fighting fighting for uh, good causes, disease. Okay. Yeah. Mm hmm Many many people are donating huge sums of money for the uh, eradication of diseases and promoting health. Okay. Okay. A lot of people feel that's a great contribution. Just being nice to your neighbor. Don't beat up your wife. Don't kick the dog. Or <laughs> Amazing you've been able to stay married as long as you have. Some people serve. Serve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, volunteering their time. Mm-hmm. Sure. There were a few other items that John Piper mentioned. Uh, intelligence was one. They feel that having a high IQ gives them the ability to impact the world in, in a positive sense. You know, offering their talents to invent, innovate, create things. Some people believe that good, good uh, works. I mean, uh, good looks, um, beauty. I think we have quite a few examples of people that are in the forefront of of a worldly, secular uh, uh, television that don't seem to be making any contribution other than the fact that they're putting their, their worth on their looks. Yes, Tom? I think there's a consensus with a lot of people to live a healthier lifestyle, that eat healthier, and exercise. So promoting that, it, yes. it, spreading that word, uh, writing books or teaching, uh, methods that by which people can live healthier lives. Okay, that's that's a good one. Yep, I think there would probably be some agreement on that. That has a potential for uh, positive impact. Money, riches. You know, they're they're the the Bill Gates of the world who undoubtedly contribute millions of dollars to good causes and and. Uh, education, health care, things like that. They feel, and, and those, some of those seem to be good, good things. They're, they're producing what well, we would probably agree to be, uh, you know, having a positive impact on the world. On page, I think it's page 44, um, John goes on to, uh, document a summary of maybe a view that some people have about um, a life that they would see as being pretty nice or ideal or we, we might look at it as kind of a minimalist way of, of living but this is the way he says it um, you may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference Maybe you don't even care very much about whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. 
you may just want people to like you. If people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick, easy death and no hell. If you could have all that, even without God, you'd be satisfied. Probably there are a lot of people that fit into that category, I would think, that maybe have that view in the world. If I could just have this and that, and packaged with this, and then end up somewhere sort of good, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be happy with that. Anybody ever felt that way? <laughs> Sounds kind of good on the surface if you kind of round off the edges a little bit. And of course, most of us in this room as believers have a little bit more to that as far as uh, where we're going to end up and where our treasure is being laid. Would we, would we would we classify that as a tragedy? And also in keeping with that theme of a wasted life, which is what we're, we're talking about with a waste life, would we put that in that category of of of, of a wasted life? Yes, sure. What 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 about that is that that makes that a wasted life? There's no Christ. There's, there's no Christ certainly. Yeah. There's no end goal but death. You really you're kind of that is the truth, isn't it? You're kind of working toward. You're working to die. Working to die, right? Hopefully to squeeze a few good things in there before you before you get there. That's good. That's it. That's interesting. Page 45 uh, goes on to give us a couple of examples of um, some people who lived quite differently. Um, the first story uh, is uh, about two women uh, in April 2000. They were both killed at the same time in Cameroon, West Africa. The first gal, her name was Ruby. She was over 80 years old. She had been single her whole life. And she had poured out her life for one great thing. And that was to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached poor, and the sick in West Africa. The other person uh, in this story, her name is Laura. She's a widow, a medical doctor, also pushing 80 years old, and serving at, Ru at uh, Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, and the car that they were in um, went off a cliff and they were both killed instantly. 
And John asks us this question in the book, was this a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to spend their life, their energy, in unheralded service. Very few people, I think, in the world probably even knew that they existed, let alone what they were doing in that part of the, of the world. They were perishing, serving the perishing poor for the glory of Christ. Even two decades after most people would have called it quits, shut things down and kind of coasted into the sunset, so to speak. But these, la these ladies didn't have any of that. So the question is, was their life a tragedy? Seems like a tragic event, though, right? tragedy or what had happened to them was a tragedy or they might they might have said it was a tragedy because their life ended so quickly and didn't have a chance to continue doing what they were doing more of a tragedy to the survivors right yeah I'm sure it was a tragedy to the people that they had been serving right. certainly their lives we would agree we're not wasted. My goodness, the probably hundreds and thousands of people that they had touched throughout their life, ministering and, and encouraging and uplifting and coming alongside, um, my goodness, the treasure in heaven and the souls that they're able to promote and, and encourage and, and uh, push to heaven uh, was a great reward. Mark, 30, Mark 8.35 says, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And I think that must have been the way they viewed life. Most of the world never knew Ruby and Laura the world would say probably after all their years of service didn't they deserve to retire to some form of comfort and enjoy their last years on earth in some kind of relaxing type mode what's that yeah right okay. 
And we could even ask, you know, didn't they deserve to, to some sort of reward or to enjoy some part of their last years on earth? And, and I guess that begs the question, maybe, um, you know, who says they didn't enjoy the, the, their years right up to the point that they stepped into, you know, the, through the pearly gates? All right, here, so here's another story. I like, you gotta love John's stories, right? This whole book is full of them. It's really kind of, kind of encouraging. It brings it really a great point. I wish I was a good storyteller. I can't tell a good story. Uh, this is also on page 45, if you got your, your book. Um, it's, in, it's entitled, An American Tragedy, How Not to Finish Your Life. Uh, and uh, John uh, got this story out of uh, the 1998 version or edition of Reader's Digest, which talks about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast uh, five years ago when, when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, that's a boat, I guess, play softball, and collect seashells. John, John remarks in the book, he says, when I first read that, I thought, that's got to be some kind of a joke, right? That, that's really what, the way they view, you know, enjoying their life. Got kind of a, almost he felt like it was a spoof on the American dream, right? It's some kind of paradox, but it wasn't. Tragically, it was it was true. So, you come to the end of your life. You're one. You're one life. You have one. You're one and only precious life, God given, and you let the last great work of your life before you give an account to God standing before his face, be this, playing softball, softball and collecting shells. You can picture them standing before Christ, right? At the day of judgment. So look, Lord, see what we, we did with our time. See the, the shiny shells that we collected? You can hear the ocean if you hold up that to your ear. That's right. Really good. So, is there tragedy in this story? We'll compare it to the, the last story. What's, is, is there a tragedy here? What If there is, what's the tragedy? There seems to be no real purpose. No meaning. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, wait. Just waiting around to die, basically. Yeah. Same thing. You know, you're waiting to die. You're working to die. They took a little different path. Right. Yeah, that's the American dream, isn't it? Vacation homes, condos. They're spending billions of dollars to advertise to people. You know, retire in this condo. You know, they've got free golf and free shuttleboard and and tours of, of 
exotic places will take care of you in your last few years. Not to worry about anything. And that's, you know, is that the Amer is that the new American dream? Yeah. Again, the world says they worked really hard all their life. Don't they deserve some reward? Don't they deserve to to do what they want in the last years of their life? To have comfort, rest from all their years of labor? Do any of us really deserve anything? Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. And there's a there's really a difference there, isn't it? How the world views uh, what we deserve and a sense of entitlement compared to, you know, maybe what we as as believers uh, think. John makes this statement on page 48, and he says, Whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life. Find your way to do it, say it, live it, and die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will have not wasted your life. Wherever God has placed you and whatever gifts he has given you, use them to tell the story of Christ crucified. Um, John points to Paul's example as a person who really sold out with this passion of using all of his energy, all of the talents, gifts that God had given him for that purpose. And we're going to look at several scriptures that really kind of portray how he felt about the way in which he was living. Uh, nobody had a more single-minded vision for his life than, than the Apostle Paul. He could say it in many different ways. He could say, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Acts 20.24. Then in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ or my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
One thing matters. Know Christ and gain Christ. Everything else is rubbish in comparison to this. So that, that begs a question, I guess, for us to, con to consider. Is there a passion in our life that makes everything else around us look like rubbish in comparison? That was Paul's pursuit. I had to really swallow hard and I think answer no to that because I, I find myself very easily caught up in the things that the world has to offer not you know not consciously trying to be selfish or self-serving just kind of seeps its way into my pores anybody have any thoughts about how to pursue that how to arrive at that point a passion in our lives that makes everything else look like rubbish in comparison. I think we have to be very intentional about it. I don't think absolutely. I find in my own life that it's like there's so many demands and things that life puts on mm -hmm. everyone. You know, I think it's interesting that we need a leader to do this. And even I think even more so as a Christian because we're expected to be. You know, upright standing, be the leaders, and be a work of integrity, and spend time with our kids, and keep our houses pristine, and keep all these things perfect. And, you know, if we're all honest with you, it's, it's a struggle yeah. you know, to, to do all of those things. And I think that just the pressures and demands that either we put on ourselves or expectations that we put on ourselves to be a certain way or to look a certain way, mm -hmm. and the expectations that maybe. Um, you know, just of life in general, I think, crowd into that. You know, I think we all, we're here because we obviously desire to walk and live for God and, and have that be our primary goal. Um, but I think even the good things of life crowd that out a lot of times. Mm -hmm. We have to be intentional about pursuing the God's yeah, there really are a lot of good things that we spend energy on that we wouldn't really put in that rubbish category, and yet we have to continually to line those up against God's standard, His plumb line, His desire for our hearts. At the same time, that's a, that's a really good comment. Page 49 starts out with the section entitled, Christ Crucified, the Blazing Center of the Glory of God. Uh, John Piper writes, His bloody death is the blazing center of the glory of God. If God is to be our boast, what he did and what he is in Christ must be our boast. 
and that's what we're going to uh, transition and, and talk about for a little bit. Uh, Paul said, uh, may the one thing that I cherish, the one thing that I rejoice in and exalt over be the cross of Christ. For Paul to say that we should boast only in the cross of Christ is a little shocking when you think about what that really means. Paul points, or John points out that it's like saying that we are to boast only in the electric chair. We're only supposed to boast in the gas chamber. We're only supposed to rejoice in the lethal injection. Let, our, let your one boast, one joy, one exultation be the lynching rope. That's, that's pretty strong. And yet, Paul said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, John goes on to describe the crucifixion. He says, no matter, no manner of execution that has ever been devised was more cruel and agonizing than to be nailed to a cross and hung up to die like a piece of meat. He said it was horrible. You would not be able to watch it. Not without screaming, pulling out your hair, and tearing your clothes as you watch the agony of the person struggling to live and knowing that they are dying. You probably even may have vomited based on watching the lifeblood drain out of this person as they hung there and slowly died. And yet Paul says, let this be the one passion of your life. That's, that's shocking on so many levels, it's almost possible to comprehend. And as I thought about that, I thought that the what I felt was important for us to think about was what was going through Christ's mind as he was dying on the cross. So I, I came up with some questions I think for just to let, think about. If you can, for a minute, Try to visualize what you think 
was going through Christ's mind as he was hung, hanging on the cross, knowing that he wasn't going to get off. No one was coming to save him, even though that was possible. We know that that was certainly within, within Christ's capacity to call a legion of, of angels to rescue him. He chose not to do that. So he's hanging on the cross, slowly dying in extreme agony and pain. A mocking and jeering crowd standing below him, spitting at him, cursing him. So what's going through the mind of Christ at that time? The joy set before. Pardon? The joy that was set before. Okay. Captivity, captive. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's what he was set. Mm-hmm. His mind was set on future glory. Yeah. That's 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 the area I felt like we want I wanted to expand on. That whole idea of future glory. Not just not necessarily for him, although that was in his future. Um, our lives are always filled with why questions. Mm -hmm. Why has this happened to me? Why did it happen to them? Why can't I? Why can't? Why this? Why that? And Jesus went through that very same thing. He asked God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. So he, I mean, he says that he's felt our weaknesses. He's, mm -hmm. We can understand that he has been there. He's been to that point where, why? Yes, that's the question. That must have surprised him. I don't think he must not have seen that coming. For somebody who is has always been in constant connection and communication with God and to have that severed must have been really excruciating. What else do you think was going through his mind? What he said, you know, God, that will be done, whatever you wish. Savagery in our world yeah, today. Yes, right. You know, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think I've, I thought about much since we started reading this is the, is the concept that God redeemed man, not necessarily for the sake of man while he did it because he loves man, but because man's original, God's original intention for man was to reflect his glory. Mm -hmm. And when man is, you know, separated from God by sin, we 
can't do what we're created to do. Mm. We can't do, we can't reflect who he is and mm-hmm. reflect his glory and, and you know, rule and take over the earth if we're in a fallen state. And so he was really redeeming his own creation so that we could do what we were created to do mm-hmm. reflect his glory to begin with. So we could be a praise to the nations. Yeah. And, you know, so really he was doing it for us, he was also doing it. I think even Josh mentioned it a couple weeks ago for his own for his own sake. You know, for the sake of his name. You know, a lot of times in the Old Testament, God would say, For the sake of my name, I'm going to do this. Not because you're worthy, Israel, but for my name's sake. Right. I'm going to do this for mm-hmm. you. I think that was part of the crucifixion was he was doing something on his own behalf to redeem his own creation so that we could do what we're created to do, which was reflect his glory. He really did place himself in that position that we needed for him to be in to allow us to be restored, right? I think I think that that's why Paul said, "I believe in the cross." The cross mm-hmm. of God's glorified, right? with God that he originally intended. 
It was our choice. We walked away from God. And so I think Christ knew, and I'm sure it must have had maybe lots of thoughts going through his mind. One of them might have been, I remember back watching when God created Adam and seeing that perfect relationship. I, I, uh, in my finite mind, I can't even comprehend the, the blissful, perfect nature of that type of relationship where you are walking daily conversing with the God of all creation. And yet I think that Christ probably saw that and knew that that was God's desire for us that we have that kind of relationship Not that it made his death any easier. It was a very, as a man, it was a very painful, you know, the scourging, the the ridicule, the people that he had come to save who were mocking and spitting and slapping and abusing him in every possible way. But he saw what could be. I think that's that's part of what drove Christ to the cross, knowing what his death could bring, could restore, could once again provide for us. So that was one of the other questions I had was, if Christ's death allowed our relationship with God to be restored, what does that true restored relationship really look like? Again, you go back to God's original intent. He created man for fellowship. So, what was restored? I think yes, back, Mike. I, I was thinking, you know, we're talking about you know, boasting in the cross and the thought of, you know, for me, it's like, why God? do that? Why would you send your son? And, and I think part of our issue there is our senses have been dulled to the point that we have totally lost the concept of the awesomeness of God and the creation that he put out there. And we, you know, have kind of been brought up in the church thinking that he did that all for us. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we're approaching it from a total, total different. No, he didn't do that for us. He did it to show his glory and his power and his majesty and that type of thing. And he created us to be part of that, what was going to show his glory and our praise to him. And we have so allowed ourselves, to, our senses, to be dull to that, you know, in. In the early, you know, Old Testament church, the Jews wouldn't even speak God's name if he was 
there, there's such a sense of reverence that was there that they, they wouldn't speak his name out loud, you know. And so, you know, now, you know, and, and I love the, the thought of our being so close to him that he's our daddy God, mm-hmm. but we've lost the other side of that as to who he really is and what he has created. And we look at, you know, the scientists are saying that, you know, that there are millions and billions of planets and stars and universes and everything out there. And we say, well, there's got to be other people there. Well, not necessarily. I mean, if God just did that to, to give us a display of who he really is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just a, a small thing to show his amazing mm-hmm. power and greatness, then... If he can do all of that, how are we not just struck that why in the world would he Bother. care about us yeah, and, and put his son through? So to me, the thought of Christ, A, being willing and the Father mm-hmm. just sending him to do that is just amazing. I mean, you just... Be like a gnat being squished, mm-hmm. but yet he loved us so much, and he wanted, as they say, to restore us to the point where we could give glory to him. You know, mm-hmm. Like the girl who just created is stunning. Yeah. Begins to open up just a little bit the depth and breadth of his love for us that we don't think enough about. When reading through the book, I've always read of these blood sacrifices and then ultimately in Christ's blood sacrifice. I always come up with the same question, why the blood sacrifice? Is there really an answer in this book of why it always had to be the blood? Question. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it canceled the 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 need for the animal sacrifice that was part of the Jewish custom as an atonement for our sins. So it was the one final blood sacrifice that that caught that that um, canceled the need for that to ever be done again. The blood, the blood represents life. God said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. So, you know, the sacrifice represented the killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... What do we have available today to us as a result of the crucifixion? Pardon? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Holy Spirit came after Christ returned to heaven. Mm-hmm. time cancel of all our sins, future, past, and present. Mm-hmm. 
Right. We were restored again to the relationship that God desired for us in the very beginning. Go back to what Josh said last week. Ultimately, the glory of God, which God is glorified. Mm-hmm. Eternal life. So John Piper goes on to say that this this is to be the only boast of our life, the only joy, the only exaltation. Far be it from me to boast except in the Christ of cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does he really mean by this? Can he be serious? No other boast, no other exaltation, no other joy except the cross of Jesus. Paul had every reason to boast about his life, but instead he chose to give all the glory to God. Everything else was rubbish. He understood that all he had and would be he owed to Christ's work on the cross. Why, why is it important for us to boast on the work of the cross? Okay. Right. Yep, that's good. Acknowledging God. What made everything possible. Right. Mm-hmm. What do we, we, we've kind of talked about a little bit. What are we tempted to do? Give man praise over, over God. Right. We're, we're so quick to say, hey, you did, you did this, you did this, really it's really easy for us to look to our own strength and wisdom and knowledge for what we have. Wasn't I really clever in the way that I did that, you know? Look what I did, you know. And break your arm, pat yourself on the back. Yes. You just talked to us about context. It's important to note that this statement, Paul, you know, is sandwiched in the discussion about men relying on circumcision for the standing of God. So I think when he talks about boasting, um, I think, you know, the focus is on what what makes me spiritually right. Um, and I think that, you know, the cross, I mean, the cross is the only... 
It's the only aspect of any religion in the face of this earth that destroys any opportunity for us to have any credit because it's completely God's work. Mm-hmm. It's none of ours. And so, as we talk about God's glory, that's, that's part of it, is that, you know, He did everything and gave a gift, and it just, <laughs> so there's no glory that I can take, there's no glory that any man can take, you know, in this, when he stands, you know, in the shadow of the cross. Yeah, there's no no way to revel in our own energy, strength, goodness in light of the cross, is there? Yeah. He paid a a great price. And the only price that could be paid to redeem us and set us free from the world. Uh, If you're following along in your book, uh, we're in page 51. The title of that section is Christ Bought Every Good Thing and every bad thing turned for good. It's very easy in our world today to think that we deserve a lot. You know, we're a very entitled country, nation. And we really become accustomed to God's blessings. Any one of us, in whatever financial state that we might happen to find ourselves in, are still in the, you know, top 1% of the world, I think. I don't know whether my statistics are correct, but we, we are an extremely blessed nation. And as a result of that, we have a tendency to take for granted what we have. Job, uh, first chapter, verse 21, said, We are creatures, and our Creator is not bound or obligated to give us anything, not life or health or anything. He gives, He takes, and He still does us no injustice. Romans 3.23 says, And besides being creatures with no claim on our Creator, we are sinners. We have fallen short of His glory. Without the cross, there is only judgment and condemnation. Everything we have is a result of the cross. Everything good and everything bad that God has turned into good. So, John Piper provides a mandate for us, and his mandate is this, so live, and so study, and so serve, so preach, and so write, 
in a way that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen God, is the only boast of this generation. And so this is to be our job, to live and speak in such a way that the worth of Christ is crucified, is seen and savored by more and more people. It will be as costly for us as it was for him. What is the cost to us if we follow that mandate? Right. So we we are expected to be hated by the world. That doesn't sound like any fun. We're not here to have fun. That's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. These are the last words Christ spoke before he left the earth. He said unto them, Go into all the world and preach good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. These are the signs to accompany the believer. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up snakes. I still don't understand that one. <laughs> don't want to sign up for that one. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on the sick people, and they will get well. After that, the Lord had spoken to them. He was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Those are Christ's last words before he left here. Tell them this all. These are the signs of a true believer. I'm sure that that was the reason he died. He looked ahead into future and saw what mankind could be, what we could accomplish, what he hoped we would take up as our mantle, the life that we would live. Right? That was the reason that he felt his death was worth it. Knowing what he was offering us as believers. Yeah, that's really powerful. That scripture has been in my heart since I was about 20 years old. Mm. The Lord's made it alive to me. Mm. And you look through the book of Acts and you see all the things that not just one or two, but over 500 people have ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're living in the 
when you are on the cross. The world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. How does that change the focus of our lives? The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. Right. When we know, then they, they it's like it flips them. Mm. They just don't get it. 
I think the more we really value the things that God values, the less it will value the things that the world values. How many, how, how many have, have ever had that thought? Come on, be honest. I have all the time. I think, wow, I could have done this and this, and then get behind me, Satan. <laughs> yeah. You know, self must die, pride must die. We must have no agenda except Christ crucified in order to live as being dead to the world. some 
some skills he used when he stopped at different people's different cities and earned a little bit of money and was able to maybe to support himself through that and through the gifts of the, of the church and yeah right he was the most most knowledgeable of yeah
get more people to glorify God. Mm -hmm. You know, one way or another. I mean, if that's, you know, I mean, maybe that's my calling. I don't know. You know, when God called me to do something else, I might back up and move. That's what I was, I was going to jump on that. It's just kind of the same thing. I think, I think we're all called. Because when's the last time a missionary showed up at your workplace? You're the, that's you. You're the, you're the guy. Mm -hmm. It's you. And as, uh, what he told David, he said, Nathan told David, you, you're the man. And mm -hmm. it's you. Yeah. Scripture has the you know the fivefold ministry gifts that are specific, but then you know it's very clear that we all have been given gifts and talents and that we use those uh, to glorify God and edify others. I think the problem is we can be exactly where God wants us to be doing the profession or raising the children, or whatever it is that we're doing. But we get so caught up in the doing of whatever that is that we neglect the relational thing of, you know, instead of pursuing God with our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole strength, we're pursuing that thing that we're doing, our job, our family, our church, or whatever, and God kind of gets what's left over. We've got that backwards. We need to turn that around where we're seeking Him with everything we have, and that will help us be more effective in the job, the family, and that. Just like you were saying, if we're raising our children to be Christ-centered, and we're doing our job to be an example of around us and to have opportunities then to share our faith. So you know, you've got to keep the power plugged in. That's our first calling. And then to wherever it is you put us at the season in our life. To, to keep us centered where we need to be, right? Exactly. Yeah. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified by Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 6.14 says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Christ's death crucified the world to me. What? what how, how does that hit you? What does that mean to you? Christ's death crucified the world to me. Um, and 614. But, I mean, God's death is 
it gives us the rebirth and the resurrection so that we can grow more in Christ and get to glorify God. Right. He really crucified the power of the world over us, didn't he? Canceled that that authority that the world had over us up to that point. So the reverse of that, then, how did Christ's death crucify me to the world? What does that mean to me? This is part, I think, of what Christ was thinking when he was on the cross, of what was going to be as a result of his death. The world's dead to me and I'm dead to the world. Mm-hmm. Christ's death allows us to ask him then to crucify the world's interests in us. We have, we can do that. I think that's what Christ wants us to do. To ask him to crucify the world's interests in us, our carnal nature, and escape the destructive darkness and influences that otherwise would consume us. seems like, I was thinking about this, we have trouble keeping our old life crucified. We want to keep resurrecting it. You know, in my own life, I was thinking about, you know, my, my prejudices, my demanding my own way, uh, my inability to, to my, or my desire to seek my own needs over the needs of others. Those are things that kind of keep wanting to get resurrected and, and come back to life. And I have to continually to ask Christ to crucify those in me that those would be uh, that those would be dead. I have one last uh, a story, and I want to spend a little bit of time in in prayer on the tables for each other before we go tonight, but. This is a story from C.S. Lewis. It's on page 58 in your book. Uh, C.S. Lewis was standing in a dark tool shed. The, the tool shed had the door closed. It was completely dark. The sun was shining outside. And there was a tiny crack at the top of the door through which a sunbeam shone in to a single beam of light shone into that tool shed. From where I stood, C.S. Lewis says, that beam of light with the flecks of dust floating in it were the most striking thing in that whole place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. 
it wasn't illuminating the the shed. All he was seeing was that single beam of light. And then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed. And above all, I saw no beam. Instead, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green, le green leaves moved on the branches of a tree outside that, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, I saw the sun. Looking along that beam and looking into the beam are very different experiences. And I think that's a challenge that we have, and that is, are we going to simply admire the beam from a distance? Or are we going to move into the beam and allow the radiance of the source of that beam to overwhelm us? I think that's the truth that John Piper would like for us to absorb into our lives, is to recognize whose we are, who our life is pointed to, and allow that light of his spirit and his crucifixion to completely illuminate and capture our life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, which is everlasting. We pray, Father, that you would, you, that you have opened up our hearts and allow us to see Christ that was paid for our redemption, the restoration, and the life that you hold out to us with open arms. Lord, help us to live in that place, a recognition of who you are and how much you desire for us or capture our hearts for you may we follow you and have a desire Lord to honor you with our very being and we will give you the praise and the glory because it is all due you in Jesus name Amen